0: Today, <laughs> world, you're listening to Cameron Riley on the Podcast Network. Thanks for coming back. My guest today was recommended to me by a long-time listener and supporter of the show, Russell Buckley, who I believe is still in Berlin somewhere. Uh, Jane Mason is the guest of the show today. Jane is a strategy consultant originally from Toronto in Canada, now living in London, and she's an expert on the Myers-Briggs personality testing, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, because I know very little about it. Welcome to the show, Jane Mason.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Now, in my uh, little bit of research for the show, I read up on Myers-Briggs, and and having worked for large organizations like Microsoft over the years, I have had to sit a a range of personality tests, usually uh, so my managers could tell me everything that was wrong with me Uh and um, why nobody liked me. But um, I I, I can't remember spending a lot of time on Myers-Briggs, but I did some research in Wikipedia, and I'd like to talk to you about... Uh, whether or not you think it's accurate, there, there seems to be a, a mm-hmm. number of people who think it's bunk, but mm-hmm. then I, then I did a test. I did one of these online tests Yeah. and it's, it came up with a result for me, which is eerily sounds like me.
1: Mhm.
0: So, uh, something's going on. Anyway, why don't, why don't we talk a little bit about your, uh, how you use Myers-Briggs? What, what, what do you do with the Myers-Briggs type indicator?
1: Um, typically what I do with the MBTI, which is the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, is I use it in my work with my clients. And I will use it with individual clients who I'm coaching, and I will also use it with groups or teams of clients who are trying to think about um, you know, getting along better, being more productive as a team. So very much in the spaces of executive coaching, which is all about helping people reach their you know, professional potential, and group dynamics, which is all about helping groups work together more effectively, uh, discuss things more effectively, make decisions in a more inclusive and efficient manner, and be able to implement what they've been discussing. So that's how I use the MBTI. It's very much based in the business world and in the world of my clients.
0: Now. The history behind this, when I started reading it, is quite fascinating. Uh, I, yeah. I would never have guessed that this is where it came from. Uh, according to Wikipedia, which is which is my Bible, um, cool. it was developed by uh, a mother and daughter team, Catherine Cook yes. Briggs and her daughter, Isabel Briggs Myers, yep. during World War II, based yep. on some of the theories of Carl Jung. Yes. Now uh, they developed it. It says here the, for, to help women who were entering the industrial workforce to identify the sort of wartime jobs where they would be most comfortable and effective. How interesting.
1: Okay, that that is interesting, and I even I did not know. And it's interesting that Wikipedia says that they developed it for women. I, you know, Catherine Briggs and Isabel Briggs Myers absolutely developed it. Um, during World War II, and the original purpose was, I thought, to assist people, not not so much to assist women per se, but to assist people in finding the best possible match between their skills and desires and career opportunities during World War II. So, you know, it's interesting the spin that Wikipedia puts on it in terms of women and in terms of, you know, World War II being a particular period in time when women would have been looking for particular opportunities that may have been open to them during the war that may not have been open to them at any other time. And certainly I have never appreciated that nuance, and it may well be true, but it's something that I didn't ever know. Um, But, you know, Catherine Briggs and and Isabel Briggs Myers, they did not have any um, grounding in psychology or in um, psychiatry, which is one of the things that makes the indicator controversial. But what they did do is they had read the book Psychological Type, which was written by Jung. Uh, It was translated into English in 1923. And based on their observations of human behavior, they developed the questionnaire, which has been um, refined, you know, over time. Over the past 50 years, it's been refined, and it's been refined to what it looks like today.
0: Now, there's some really interesting stuff on... um Isabel Briggs Myers, the daughter, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an individual. I mean, fascinating. Apparently, she was homeschooled by her mother, went yep. on to earn a bachelor's degree in political science. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, you know. Pretty uh, ballsy stuff for somebody who was born in eighteen. No, no. Uh, her mother was born in eighteen seventy-five. When she was born, eighteen ninety-seven. Yeah. Still mm-hmm. you know, pretty ballsy. Yeah. Um, for that for that generation, wrote a prize-winning mystery novel, *Murder Yet to Come*, in nineteen twenty-nine, using some of these typological ideas. Um, but then uh, she wrote a book called *Give Me Death*, a murder mystery that revolves around a note. To his daughter, by, left by a supposed suicide, in which he confesses to a strain of Negro blood, advises her to forget she ever thought of marriage, and apologises for the humiliation he has brought upon her. Dialogue in the book concerns the impossibility of interracial marriage.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: obviously... Um,
1: Product of its time.
0: Well, it could be, I guess. Is mm-hmm. that how you would put it?
1: Yeah, I would just say a product of its time. And think what else, you know, that what was going on at that time. You certainly did not have any kind of equality. Um, this is in 1934, in, 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 you know. she
0: published this book, too. So, you know, yeah. yeah. So
1: we're, we're still into major segregation. We're still into, you know, the tail end. I know slavery had been abolished long, long before that, but obviously attitudes remained. Um, you know, you still had, I mean, Philip Roth wrote The Human Stain just a couple of years ago, which was, you know, obviously that a black man who had hidden his background for his whole entire life. And you know that was only written, you know, probably in the 90s.
0: Right. But the, so she wrote these books before mm. they developed the um my the 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 MBTI personality testing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um uh, so there, some of the criticisms of it, as you said, based on the fact that A, these um, two ladies didn't have any background in psychology. And B, yeah. I understand that um, quite a bit of Carl Jung stuff has been uh, discounted by the psychiatric profession mm-hmm. in recent years. But I still have people come up to me all the time and say, oh, you have to read Jung. Oh, they they, they mm-hmm. love you. Jung has still obviously got a huge um, popular support base out there.
1: Yeah, I think Jung does. I mean, Jung and Freud have 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 a they they couldn't stand each other. They had an extraordinary professional rivalry. Um, but you know, I think that that people are going to have their promoters and they're going to have their detractors. The the sort of modern, the very modern field of cognitive behavioral therapy or cognitive psychology, really does um, discount Jung, because cognitive behavioral therapy is is all about, you know, proactively correcting habits. And very much looking forward as opposed to looking backwards and trying to understand, you know, why things are the way they are. There are lots of people who know more about it than I do, and they may well disagree with me. But I certainly know that sort of the cognitive psychologists, many of them do reject Jung. Um, His methods primarily included sort of introspection, so looking within yourself, and anecdotes. So trying to understand your past through stories. And he was really the, the person who talked a lot about archetypes. So the archetype of the woman, the archetype of the man. So a woman is the mother, is the teacher. A man is, is, is the, the king and the hunter. And, you know, he was very much into dreams and understanding dreams, as, of course, was Freud. And, you know, these are, these are the, the fathers of psychology. So, of course, people have built on their initial theories which were developed from scratch, you know, 100 years ago. Mm. You know, thinking has moved on from that, but nevertheless, Jung contributed something really important to our understanding of behavior in that he really was the first one who said behavior is predictable. Nobody had really ever said that before. So Mm. his point of view was that behavior is predictable. We are all born with behavioral preferences, and it doesn't mean that we cannot behave in a different way. It just means that in, under certain circumstances, we prefer to behave in certain ways. And so, uh, you know. The,
0: the way I remember being taken through these sorts of uh, training exercises in my corporate days yeah. was that the objective of it was to help you identify your primary uh, modes of behavior. And then yeah. to understand the primary modes of behavior of your colleagues and be able mm-hmm. to adjust your modes of behavior to suit the people that you wanted to communicate with in the best way or you had to work with and get along. Is, is that how you use it in your consulting?
1: Um, yes and no. I mean, definitely a huge amount of that is if you can understand yourself you can understand your reactions to things and you can control your behavior more effectively. And if you understand why other people are behaving the way they do, you can develop a better tolerance for them and a deeper understanding and appreciation for the way in which they're behaving. So, I mean, Jung doesn't say, and MBTI people don't say, look, try and modify everything. And if everybody tried to modify everything, we would all get into a place of, you know, the holy grail of, of mutual understanding. But in actual fact, you know, people's strengths and weaknesses add to the mix. You know, If you have a particular strength, you should bring that to a meeting, and somebody else should bring their strength to a meeting. The important thing is to understand that we are different, and you're not behaving in, in such a way to, to make everybody angry, you're not doing anything deliberately, you're just the way you are, and we need to cut you some slack, and we need to kind of utilize you for what you're really, really good at and backfill for you, you know, for the things that you're not so good at. And if we do that for everybody on the team, then the team should really outperform.
0: So it's, it's about understanding the team dynamics and making sure that everything is uh, covered.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, how many times have, you know, most professionals who you know, may be listening have been in meetings where you have five or six really qualified, really smart people in a room to solve a particular problem. And they're all there willingly, and they really all want to solve the problem. And after three hours, they're incredibly frustrated, they're at each other's throats, they're cross, and the problem hasn't been solved, and they just don't know why. And one of the reasons is because they don't understand that you know, different people's behaviors can be managed, and people aren't behaving you know, to, 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 to frustrate people deliberately, They're just behaving the way they naturally behave in the circumstances. And once again, if we can understand behaviors, we can adapt to them. Um, And and, and the team, you know, in reality actually will perform much better.
0: So I remember getting myself into situations where I'd be in meetings with, um, I remember one colleague in particular who used to frustrate the hell out of me because he was such a sensitive little pedal. And, Mm -hmm. And I would make observations about things that had gone wrong in a deal and he would then curl up in the corner and think I was attacking him and mm-hmm. I used to try and explain I'm not attacking you I'm just calling it as I see it. Uh mm-hmm. how do you uh how do people in these meetings know what everyone else's preferences are? Do they all wear little you know name badges with their um type indicators on them or how do you how do you mention it? <laughs> no, you know? and, uh,
1: it's, it's actually, it's a, it's a really great question because, you know, from a, from a kind of uh, uh, a strict ethical perspective, um, nobody can be forced to reveal their type. So if I'm going to work with a group of executives, people kind of have to agree up front that they're willing to share their type with others. Okay, so that's kind of one of the first principles of Myers-Briggs, which is that actually, you know, your type is private to you. And if you don't want to reveal it, you don't have to. You know, I shouldn't be the one who says, oh, and, you know, Jane is an ENTP or whatever. You know, Jane should be willing to reveal that herself. So so part of working with a group of executives is, firstly, is everybody willing to reveal their type? And, you know, 10 times out of 10 so far, everybody is. And, you know, the best thing to do is to work with a team who's going to be working together for a certain period of time so that they can get to know each other really well. And once you're in a team that really understands each other well and understands the different types, each of those people can go out into other teams, and individually, they will be more effective. And you know, in an ideal world, they will enhance the performance of new teams, even if nobody else on their new team has done the Myers-Briggs. But most of the time, when people who've done Myers-Briggs and worked with a really good team go into a new team, they'll say, it would be really great if we all did Myers-Briggs because then we could work together more effectively.
0: Okay, so let's, let's look at your, you said you're an ENTP? ENTP. Okay, I'm an INTP. Okay. Little test I did. So let's say you and I were in a team together, um, just mm-hmm. the two of us, you're an ENTP and I'm an INTP. Um, yep. w- what do we do next? H- how do we work out how to work well together?
1: Okay, well what we would have to understand is our, our individual type dynamics. And here, I'm going to get a piece of paper out to do some scribbling on my own. Um, Because with an ENTP, let me just do this.
0: While while you're doing that, Uh, I'll I'll tell people what an ENTP stands for. That's Extroverted Intuitive Thinking Perceiving. According to Wikipedia, the ENTP has been described variously as the innovator, the originator, the lawyer, the inventor, the explorer, and the visionary. They also fall into the general categories of thinkers, rationals, and engineers. It's funny we were having a discussion off air before the show about um, the, my church for atheists, and it sounds like we both are, are rationalists. Um, uh, now, uh, which one of those are you—the innovator, originator, lawyer, inventor, explorer, and visionary?
1: I am the the innovator, innovator. the innovator and the originator.
0: Okay,
1: that's the ENTP, and and the ENTP the 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 difference. They, firstly, there's a really big difference between the E and the I, and, and here we have to get into there are four, Myers-Briggs talks about four, there's kind of four things that you look at when you're looking at type dynamics, and the first one, which is the E-I, the extrovert-introvert dichotomy, is, it's, it's not about extroversion versus introversion in the classical sense. It doesn't mean that an E is loud and an I is quiet, what it means that an E, an extrovert, gets creative energy, gets energy from the outside world, from interacting with others. So for me, I love brainstorming. You know, extroverts typically love brainstorming. They like to interact with people. Sometimes they're very sociable. They really like parties. You know, not all extroverts like parties and are sociable, but definitely extroverts get a lot of energy from interacting with the outside world. Um, Whereas introverts can find that very exhausting. And again, it doesn't mean that introverts don't like parties. It just means that they can find interacting with the outside world very, very tiring. And in order to recharge their batteries, they need to reflect. They might need to read a book or listen to music or be by themselves for a certain part of the day. So the introvert's energy comes from within. And the extrovert's energy comes from the outside world. So and that's, that's one of the first two big differences so in the kind of... The mm-hmm. difference
0: between you and I, then. I'm an I, and I, yep. I, I work by myself, you know, I have a home office, and I love it. I love being by myself all day. I, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> it's, I find being around people absolutely exhausting.
1: Right, whereas I love being around people. And um, it doesn't mean I don't like time on my own, in the same way that I'm sure that you like time with others, yeah, not so But much. you need time on your own.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, can, I can tolerate being around other people if I have to. I can smile.
1: Right, well, you do interviews.
0: Yeah, but I do it, you know, usually over a microphone. So if I don't like you, I can just hang up.
1: Yes, fair if,
0: enough. I've got an escape clause. <laughs> uh, push the off button. That's right. Oh,
1: sorry. Power right. failure between Australia and London listeners. Yeah, Terribly somebody, sorry.
0: Somebody cut an internet <laughs> cable uh, in the Middle East. <laughs>
1: Um, um, okay, mm-hmm.
0: so the EI so, so, is the you know, first one.
1: Mm-hmm. So the EI is one of the big you know, differences, and, and between us. And so for me, if you said to me, here's a problem, go away and solve it on your own, I would do almost anything if I had, other than solve it. Do you know what I mean? I would be scrubbing the loo before I solved the problem. I really like to solve problems by interacting with other people.
0: And so if we're in a team situation and somebody needs to go out and, uh, you know, be around the clients or or run the functions Mm -hmm. or run the parties or or not run the parties, but but run, you know, group thinks or workshops, you you would be a better person to to go and do all of that?
1: Not not necessarily. I wouldn't necessarily be a better person. But what we may find is I might prefer to do that and you might prefer not to.
0: Right. Absolutely. Yep.
1: Um, and, and the, you know, when you're working in a group, it is actually really important to figure out who the E's are versus the I's, because it's really easy for E's to take over. And if someone's not paying attention, it's very, very easy for I's to sit there and say nothing the whole time. <laughs> and you know that they're thinking and they have a contribution, but you have to make space for an introvert to talk. You have to ask them a direct question.
0: Absolutely.
1: You know, or you, ha- you also have to give introverts time to absorb data, make a decision, before they're willing to come out with it. The big, you know, one of the big differences and questions that you can tell somebody who's E versus I is you take them back to school and, um, you know, imagine you're in a scenario where you're in the classroom and the teacher says, okay, children, 60% of your grade is going to be class participation. At that point, all the E's in the room, myself included, just thought, this is fantastic. I will have to do no work. All I have to do is blab the whole time And I will get a good grade, and all the eyes died a thousand deaths, and thought, "Oh my God, that's the worst piece of news I've ever heard," because typically eyes don't like to kind of say a sentence before they've got it fully formed in their mind. You know, with the full stop on the end. So it's really easy for eyes to be, you know, just ridden over by ease. Yeah, the,
0: the interesting thing um, from my experience is, I mean, most people, probably a lot of people listening to this, won't believe it when I say I'm an introvert. And most people, you know, never believe me when I say I'm shy and I don't like being around people, because I'm very loud and I'm, I'm, you know, when I'm out in public, I usually don't stop talking and I do control the room and and I'm very, you know, and in, in school, I was uh, on stage a lot doing plays mm. and and. You know always performing what people don't realize it was a that was a character that i I learned to put on as a as a young kid mm-hmm. i learned I learned that if I put on the uh smart ass loud character that people didn't ask me questions and I didn't have to talk about my alcoholic father or the fact that he'd beat me up every day and all that kind of stuff that I didn't want people to know about so you put mm-hmm. on you know masks you put on personality types and mm-hmm. in, do you find that introverts sometimes act? As extroverts to uh, hide? <laughs>
1: oh, well, it's, it's, I mean, I don't know that they, introverts do it to hide, but you, you had a really great word there, which is control. I mean, some of our best actors, if you think of you know, some of the famous, famous actors, Laurence Olivier was a desperate introvert you know, when he was off stage. But the word that you mentioned is control. Introverts are great in front of people when they're in control. So on stage... An introvert, you know, when you're on stage, you're completely in control. It's highly unlikely that the audience is going to heckle you. If you, as an adult, can, you know, be in a party and be working a party, but you're an adult, you're kind of in control, and if at any point you feel out of control, you can walk away. Introverts aren't necessarily scared of people. They're scared of being in a situation in which they're not in control.
0: Oh, absolutely. I had to, I Right, was... so
1: public speaking isn't a fear of people. It's a fear of someone asking you something that you don't know the answer to immediately.
0: Right. Or something you don't want to answer.
1: Yeah, or something you don't want to answer. Exactly.
0: Okay, well, that explains a lot. Let's, let's move on to S and N.
1: S and N. Okay, now you and I are both Ns, um, but we, we manifest that in different ways and we'll come back to that. S and N, this is really getting to the heart of behavioral preferences. And, and here, I need to back up for a second because what Jung observed when he talked about behavioral preferences was that all people do two things. I mean, amongst the zillion things that we do. Fundamentally, we all take in information and we all make decisions based on that information. But the way in which we take in information and the way in which we make decisions differs. So the S-N dichotomy is very much about how do we take in information? And on one side, you have S, which stands for sensing. And on the other side, you have N, which stands for intuiting because the I was already taken up with introvert. So they had to make it an N. And um, S people take in data in great detail and along the five sensing channels. They literally see, they feel, they smell, you know, they, they taste, they hear. And so an S person has an extraordinary capacity for detail. And it could be, you know, detail of the written word. You know, they could, just, they could read and absorb and remember everything that they see. On the page. Um, if an S person goes through a storm you know, or a hurricane and you say, what was it like? They'll be able to describe the sound of the wind and the feeling of the rain and the, the size of the drops and the, the taste of the salt. And they'll really be able to take you through the detail of what it was like experiencing that storm. You know, S people often, if they leave a room, they can tell you the color of the walls, how many people were in the room. You know, they they really absorb an extraordinary amount of information about their environment. They tend to be literal, and, you know, they tend to kind of see things for what they are. Whereas N people, the intuitors, they tend to be less detail-orientated, and they tend to see things for what they could be as opposed to what they are. So an N person is always turning something into something else. You know, it's a, a tree isn't just a tree; it's it's a place where aliens hide. You know, I'm I'm not giving a great example, but N people, they they really don't take in the detail of the here and now; they translate it all into what it could be. So everything is a kind of symbol. Everything is is has possibilities.
0: And I read that it isn't
1: just what it is.
0: I read that N people are. Uh... Prefer to sort of trust their hunches and their gut feelings, and you know, run off of. I'm uh, more prepared to trust those sorts of blink moments. Have you read Malcolm Gladwell's book? Yeah.
1: Blink? Um. Yeah. I. I. I think. That, I don't know that they're more prepared to. I think it's more that they they put together detail and process it very quickly, so they draw conclusions much more rapidly than S people. So F people, they, as I say, they tend to be linear. So they'll put all the dots together. They'll go, you know, A, B, C, D, E, G must be next. Oh, no, it's F. Or, you know, but they, 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 they add things together in a very linear way. Whereas N people go, A, B, Z. Yeah, it must be Z. Yeah, I got it. It's Z. Yep. So N's just, just formulate hunches much more rapidly. It doesn't mean they're Right and that 's the danger and and people and you and I are both ends. we often think that we 're right. We kind of put together a data set and we, and we draw a conclusion very quickly, um, whereas F people are much more cautious about drawing a conclusion until they have all the data they feel they need.
0: Have you read Malcolm Gladwell's book blink
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: I mean he seems to put forward a fairly strong case for you know why intuition is there and how it works and but yeah, absolutely. So do you think so in a team dynamic situation, it's good to have an S and an, an N and have them working together, the the S, you know, backing up the N's hunches by trying to find corroborating data?
1: Yeah, I think I I think that is very useful and, and, and I think the way you articulate it is, is really sound. Um, it, it is it is by far the the biggest frustration between people, the S N dichotomy. Um, and in a team, the, the a lot of tension sits between the S's who have a high need for certainty and a high need for data and a high need to have the I's dotted and the T's crossed before they're willing to move on to the next bit of the meeting. And the N's who are kind of already at the end of the meeting, five minutes in. You know, they've made their decisions, they're ready to go, and they get bored.
0: Yep. And and is it, you know, a case in, again, in a team situation of helping people understand that neither of these approaches is necessarily right or wrong, but people have different ways of dealing with these sorts of things and that we need to be able to understand that and, and appreciate those differences and find ways to satisfy both parties?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think, I mean, especially, you know, again, ends need to chill out. As I say, Ns can be, when ends get bored, they can get disruptive. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and I'm an N, right? So I'm, I'm right up there in the guilty party, you know, among the guilty parties. So what can happen in a meeting is that ends kind of um, skim a document or they skim the information. They draw a series of conclusions. They might not have read it properly. They certainly haven't taken in all the detail, but they've drawn a series of conclusions and they may or may not be wedded to those conclusions. You know, S's are still going through the document. You know, they're still reading it. If you want something signed quickly, you don't give it to an S person because they actually will read the entire document and check for typos and make sure the math adds up. Whereas the N person will go, oh yeah, yeah, it looks fine and sign it and hand it back without actually really looking. So N's need to be appreciative of the fact that S's will rarely miss a trick. And N's need to be, you know, need to understand and make space for the S's need for certainty. Whereas sometimes, you know, S's need to just move on, understanding that they're never going to have a complete data set before they're required to make a decision. Which can be really tough.
0: Yeah, again, I remember back in my Microsoft days, I think a lot of the middle managers in Microsoft were S's. They had been. Seventy
1: percent. Yeah, seventy percent of people in the US anyway, where the instrument is most most widely tested are S. And I,
0: and I think Microsoft as an organization tends to promote detail oriented people because it's a company that's very much run on spreadsheets and understanding the numbers. And I would be in situations with managers where I would say, Well, I think we need to go over here and do this thing and they'd say why? And I'd say, Well, it just seems like this is the right place for us to be right Mm. now and I get this vibe from talking to customers and listening seeing what's happening in the market that we need to be doing this. But unless you could, you know, build a thirty five page spreadsheet to justify that, it was very very difficult to get support for those sorts of initiatives.
1: Yeah, and the thing is, you can appreciate it. And, and, of course, the people you're talking about are software engineers.
0: No, these are sales. And these you are... can
1: appreciate that that detail orientation is critical when you're building a bridge. You know, there's a reason why most engineers are S, because that detail orientation is absolutely vital in the construction of anything.
0: Do you say all engineers are asses?
1: No, S.
0: Oh, right, right, <laughs> just, just, just clarifying that.
1: <laughs> just clarifying that.
0: Okay, so let's uh, T and F, thinking and feeling.
1: Yeah, thinking and feeling. Now, this is another kind of interesting one, and, and the T F dichotomy is related to the way in which people make decisions. So we've gone over where people get their energy, which is E I, yep. and um, whether people, how people take in data, which is either very detail orientated or kind of in a pre-interpreted block, which is the S versus N dichotomy. And this next bit is how people make decisions, and what the MBTI observes is that people prefer to make decisions either through rational, logical analysis, which is the T, thinking function, or based on values, which is the F, feeling function. So F is a bit of a red herring because it's not about feelings. It's not about people make decisions based on emotions. It's about making decisions based on values. And um, you know, based on a, a particular value system that they hold, either very much internally to themselves, and/or based on the value of external harmony. So you know, the the you often have this the difference between what's right and what's fair. You know, and it's very easy for a T person to identify what's right. We'll make this decision because it's right. Whereas an F person might say, no, we need to make a different decision because although that might be right, it's not fair. And it it can be a a very, very difficult moment in the decision-making process with any group because F people have a very keen sense of justice and a very keen sense of involving other people in a decision-making process. And T's... Just do not. You know, T's are very capable of seeing what they perceive to be right and going with that regardless of how it impacts people. So the impact on people is almost the last thing that a T person considers when making a decision.
0: So, so how do you manage this sort of difference in a practical, everyday scenario?
1: Well, it's, it's actually a lot easier than it sounds simply because when you're working with a team, and you're working in a company, there are always people to be considered you know, with any decision that you make in the company. And, you, know, you should always be considering the impact on people of that decision. So, in actual fact, it's really, really critical that any senior team has F representation. And the reality is that at very senior levels in organizations, there is rarely an F representation. So all of these massive decisions are made at the tops of companies with almost no thought put to how will this decision impact the people in my company. So, you know, the F person is really important because they say, okay, it's really interesting that we've all decided we want to open up the new office in Dubai. Who's going to staff it? And all the T people go, oh, good question. We never thought of that. We'll just tell Bob. He'll go. No, you can't just tell Bob. You know, Bob's wife is about to have a new job, and she's going to get a promotion, and maybe his family doesn't want to go, and I think you need to talk to Bob before you just tell him to sell his house here and go to Dubai. No, 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 we'll just tell Bob. And it's like, no, if you do that, Bob will quit. So, you know, F people, and I'm giving a trivial example, but F people have a really, really important role to play in helping executive teams, and in fact, any team think about the impact on people of the decisions they're making. And that healthy debate usually only comes when there are kind of F's and T's, you know, on, on a team together.
0: So you said that very few people in the senior executive ranks of big companies are F's. Why do you think that yeah. is?
1: Um, that's a, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, Partly because now the, all of the other kind of, um, you know, the EI and the, the NS and the last which is the PJ um, dichotomy, they don't split down by gender, right? It's sort of 50-50. TF does split by gender. So what we see is that about there, there are more women who are F than men. So 70% of women are F and um, 70% of men are T. So one thing that's just you know very clear is 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 today there are many many more men at the tops of organizations than there are women. So statistically, you're going to get more T's than F's at the top of an organization. Uh, the other thing is that a lot of T's and F's will self-select into certain um, careers. So and it is this is by no means um, to to be to be. It's not statistically correct what I'm about to say, but, you know, a lot of Fs will tend to go into um, careers that have to do a lot with people. So you will have a lot of Fs in the medical profession. You will have a lot of Fs in social working. You may have a lot of Fs in the police force. You know, anything um, could be in the diplomatic corps. So any career where there is an element of service and an element of working with people may over-index in Fs. And any career where it's it's less about you know uh, being of service or or working directly with people will probably have more T's. So the tops of any of these huge organizations will be dominated, are dominated by men, and are probably dominated by men who are T's versus men who are F's, simply because they don't self-select into you know managing global companies, and more men are T's than F's. And you th- so you- that, that's why that happens.
0: And do you think this causes a problem with uh, the way that big corporations are being run today?
1: I think it does, actually, because, you know, the, the most important asset that a company has is the people who work in it. You know, and the reason it's the most important is because they have two legs and they can walk. So, you know, the big critical managerial issue now is all about people and managing people and managing talent and getting the best out of people and attracting and retaining the best talent. And if companies consistently make decisions at the top levels that don't even think for a second about the impact on the people in the organization, it's really no mystery that a lot of people are discontented with the companies in which they're working and the decisions which those companies are making.
0: Okay. Let's move on. Let's talk about the uh, JPs, judging and perceiving.
1: Okay. This dichotomy is about, um, MBTI calls it kind of life orientation. So this talks to, we've talked about, you know, how you make decisions and we've talked about how you take in data. And the JP dichotomy talks about, do you as a kind of life orientation prefer to take in data or do you prefer to make decisions? So, for example, if I say to you, um, when you wake up on a Sunday morning, do you open your eyes and think through your day and say, I'm going to do this, 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 and it gives you a great sense of comfort that you have your entire day mapped out and you know what you're going to be doing? Or do you wake up on a Saturday or Sunday and go, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I'm perfectly happy with that. I'm just going to let the day unfold.
0: (laughs) Uh, well, yeah, usually the latter if I, have, if I can get away with it.
1: Right, and that's the P orientation, which is you know, what, what MBTI would say is that you have a preference for just taking in information. right? You, ha- you don't have a preference for decision-making. So you're very happy to leave things open. You're very happy for things to be a bit loosey-goosey. You'll go <laughs> with the flow. You'll be flexible. In fact, if you're too boxed in, it can make you very uncomfortable. Whereas people with a J orientation, they like closure, they like structure, they like to know what's going on, when it's going to happen, they like to be scheduled, and it's that structure that gives them a sense of comfort.
0: It reminds me of um, a couple of years ago when my wife and I went, went and spent a month in Europe after I left my job. And she wanted everything planned, booked down, cars booked, hotels, you know, and I just wanted to rock up, turn up in Paris with like no plans. It was like, let's just turn up in Paris and I don't know, I'll just get a bike and ride around for a month and, you know, work work it as we go kind of thing. And completely different approaches to what makes a good holiday.
1: Well, exactly. And, and that's, you know, you, as you probably had your moments of friction and then you clearly, you know, I hope that you figured it out and you found some kind of compromise. You know, and some days were structured and some days weren't structured. Well,
0: she's a woman, so she did what I told her to do, obviously. Oh,
1: right. Okay, yeah. okay. I think I'll talk to her about that later. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, obviously, when you're talking about an organization and working in a team, again, the different people on the team need to appreciate that different people have different levels of need for structure or not. Um, but the reality is when you're working in a team and you have deadlines, you, know, you have to be organized and you have to keep to the deadlines and you have to have a structure. So what's really good is you know, if the J's actually create the structure and keep people on task and keep people within time, In order that, Because, you know, P's, we could just sit around and chat all day and actually not necessarily achieve anything. So to a certain extent, we have to be kind of kept in line by the J's of the world so that we actually achieve something in a particular time frame. And again, you know, P's can appreciate J's. If they don't understand that the person just has a need for structure, it's really easy to think that the person's being uptight or that they're bullying or that they're just, you know, killjoy. I know. And if...
0: Mm-hmm. The uh, they anal, is the way I would usually... Yeah, say exactly.
1: Anal. I didn't want to say it. I didn't know if I could say them on radio. Well, you're um, not on the
0: radio. You're on a podcast. You can say anything okay, you like, Jane.
1: Anything at all?
0: Anything at all. No holds wow. barred. Wow.
1: Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, it's important that the you know, peas don't go, oh, God, this person's just an, you know, an anal git. Um, and, and they can turn around and say, no, no, no. Okay, it's just that they need structure. And if you can talk about it openly, again, cut each other a bit more slack you're much more likely to work effectively together.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, it sounds like the way that, you know, my wife and I approach the holiday. I mean, in fact, what we did is we had sort of, uh, we split it up. So she had her two weeks that were incredibly structured and I had my two mm-hmm. weeks where we just rocked up and roamed around and worked it out once we got there, you know, based on what the weather was like and who I bumped into in the middle of the Champs-Élysées mm-hmm. and uh, that sort of thing, you know?
1: Well, and I I mean, I've had, similarly, I've had holidays. You know, I remember uh, years ago, um, a friend, uh, my friend Sonia and I went on holiday together, and she would say, what are we going to do tomorrow? And I would say, I don't know. Why don't we think about it tomorrow? (laughs) And she would say, no, 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 but, you know, planning is so much fun. Let's plan for tomorrow. (laughs) And I would say "But it might rain. (laughs) And she'd say, oh, that's fantastic. We can have two plans, two plans, (laughs) one plan for rain and one plan for... And I was like... (laughs) <laughs> you know can't we just decide tomorrow? <laughs> um and you know and so finally now we've we've been friends for so long, you know, if we're ever together for the weekend or whatever, she'll sit there the night before and she'll say, "Okay, I'm not planning, I'm discussing options." <laughs> and I'm like, "Options? I can do options. Options are good. But please don't make me plan." <laughs> Because that makes her feel better, that she has some idea of what the options are for the next day. And I'm okay with options because it doesn't constrain me.
0: Yeah, uh, w- the Wikipedia thing I've got here says that uh, the the uh, JP um, preference aligns to left brain and right brain dominance with the, the left brain, the logical being the judging type personality in the right brain the more creative being the perceiving and i know that left brain right brain dominances are sort of frowned upon as well in cognitive psychology these days
1: but mm-hmm.
0: it does seem that you know the logical people want a framework although i consider myself you know predominantly logical most of the time and yet That's because you're a T. But yet when it comes to these sorts of things i i do just like to see what kind of mood hits me and then i'll decide what i'm doing. Mhm. Confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, we so we've done a a basic rundown of the the the, the what do you call those things? The dichotomies.
1: Yeah. Or yeah, yeah.
0: Um uh, so let's talk about uh, uh, we, we've talked a little bit about practical application in the workplace. Is this something that you think should be more understood generally speaking in our society? Is this something we should be teaching kids when they're in school so they have a better understanding i've got seven year old boys should my boys be Mm -hmm. you know thinking about this when they're figuring out how to get along with kids in the playground and and how to how to deal with teachers how to give teachers with certain certain preferences what they need
1: well i think seven might be a little bit young um simply because i think at seven they don't necessarily have the ability to rationalize yet so I don't know that they'd be able to get along with this so well. I mean, Jung, they can play.
0: Yeah. They can play Halo Three. I mean, if they can play Halo Three, yeah, exactly.
1: If they can play, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I I don't even know any video games, so I can't even give you a witty repartee on that one. Um, Jung argued that we are born a certain type, and we will, and and that's the way we are. So you know, he argues for nurture, okay, which a lot of people argue against. A lot of people argue nature. Okay, but Jung argued that we're born a certain way with certain behavioral preferences that are innate. And if we sort of develop along a, quote, normal, unquote, development path, we'll kind of actualize into the type that we were born and you know those preferences will become reality now if our development is interrupted by some kind of shock or trauma like the early death of a parent or um, you know a very disruptive home life then we could develop coping mechanisms which kind of hide our true behavioral preferences so that's kind of one thing to remember as we go into the discussion of, of life skills I I mean, seven is is clearly too young to take the indicator, and I think a good time to take the indicator is is if you were going to do it as university, you know, university or your first job or something like that. Now, the point is this is just one of many, many, many psychometric tests or instruments. Um, There are loads of different ones. There, There are ones that particularly focus on a leadership style. There are ones that focus on how you deal with conflict. They're ones with focus on your behavior under pressure. So there are tons of different ones. Um, I like Myers-Briggs because I think it's, it's very thoughtful. I think it's thorough. And it also talks about a development path. So it doesn't say, you know, this is the way you are forever. But it says this is how you will develop given the type you are. And, and, you know, a lot of people object to being one of 16 types. They say, but I'm an individual and I, I don't want to be one of 16 and how can you put all of life into one of 16 types? But, you know, people are not all the same and they're not all different. And, you know, if you don't believe in segmentation, that's a whole separate argument. But I think it does help people think about why they do what they do and it helps them think about how to cope with people who are very different from them. So that's why I think it's quite a useful life tool. And it can also help people think about, well, you know, if I'm a particular type, there could be careers that are more suited to me than others. And I think that's very helpful as well. And, and, you know, people don't want to get pushed down a particular track necessarily. But if you can see that, you know, there there's a world of possible careers out there. And you might want to explore some of these that you've never thought of before. I think that's very helpful.
0: And in terms of uh, just helping you with your life on a daily basis, outside of the strategy consulting that you do, mm-hmm. do you use your understanding of Maya Briggs uh, I mean, you talked about your friend before and spending weekends mm-hmm. together. Are there other ways that you found that you can use it to your advantage?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I really, really do. And, and, you know, people will laugh, but anybody who's into Myers-Briggs uses it all the time. And my partner, Simon, who is thankfully gone to bed, so he's not listening to me, um, he is an S. Whereas I'm ENTP and you're INTP, he's ESTP. So he's one of the people who's very detail-orientated, very logical, very linear. And it's enormously helpful to understand he's not giving me detail for the sake of giving me detail. He has to give me detail. And because he loves me, he'll give me even more detail as a kind of token of his love and affection. The fact that I don't need the detail is neither here nor there. And, and, you know, it is very helpful to understand that he's doing it because he's an S. He can't not do it. And, you know, when you grow up in, in, you know, I went to university, I'm an arts major, the vast majority of my friends are kind of arts majors from university. I don't know a lot of scientists. I don't know a lot of people who are F. And, you know, seriously, our relationship, one of the reasons that it's functioned so well is because of Mars briggs which sounds completely lame. <laughs> but a lot of people who are really into Mars briggs would say the same thing.
0: So you does uh, is he into Myers-Briggs as well? I mean, do you do this? No, he hates
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> he hates it. But okay, but I'll give you another example. Sabine, this is uh, Russ Buckley's wife, for those of you who are familiar with Russ. She's a big F. And if I ever have to have a really difficult conversation with somebody or I ever have to give someone difficult news or bad feedback or have to have a really tricky, highly political, potentially very emotive conversation, I will always talk to her about it first.
0: right? Because
1: she is adept at thinking about anticipating how someone might feel or how I might feel and helping me think about different angles for the conversation strategy that I would never have thought of in a million years.
0: When I have to write a difficult email, uh, I usually run it past my wife first. Not only is she a, mm. an, a journalist and an editor, but being a, a, an F, she's able to say, well, you probably should say it like this rather than like mm-hmm. that. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. right, yeah, that makes sense. I don't know why I didn't think of it because I can be mm-hmm. very, very blunt and direct. Yeah, how
1: come you think that you dumb asshole is going to work?
0: <laughs> it's accurate. I mean, I'm just trying to be yeah, honest yeah, and accurate. Yeah, it's
1: right. Yeah, Get out Yeah, that's of
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you know we we should uh all you know uh, surround ourselves with people who are the opposite dichotomy to us that we can call upon, identify when we need help and call upon these people to uh help us uh, think through our approaches to these sorts of situations perhaps
1: yeah and i and I think that's in in your private life, I think that's great, and I think in your professional life you know there really are people out there who by dint of the fact that they're different from you, can help you do things that you find hard. You know, there are people out there who are just really, really organized, who are very structured, or who are super creative, um, you know, who can help you think about things in a totally new and different way. And, you know, it's, it's hard working with people who are of a different type. It's really hard. But in the end, the product is usually better.
0: Jane Mason, thanks for coming on. It's been fascinating.
1: It's been really great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you.